uh, welcome to, to the in-laws are in town, uh, Eddie and Stacey. Thank you guys so much for being here. Please welcome them. Listen, we're from the South. This is different for us. You know, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's a different place. So give them a good New York welcome after the service. Lots of, I've heard lots of pastors make terrible, terrible jokes about their in-laws from the pulpit. Um, God has been very kind in giving me uh, very kind and generous, easy to get along with in-laws. So I am very thankful for that because um, I've, heard, I've heard horror stories. So glad you guys are here. Emma is in heaven. Um, she's going to be devastated when they leave. She's going to punish us when they leave uh, because we're boring and they're not. So glad you guys are here. Glad you, everyone else is here with us. Um, and one other quick announcement I wanted to make. I, I wore pink on purpose because I didn't officially announce yet that Melissa is having another little girl. Um, so we are extremely excited about that. Um, listen, guys, God is being very good to this church. Um, we have four ladies in the church right now that are pregnant. Um, we have Melissa and Jenny and Carell and Rosa, all of them do within a short period of time. Little VJ was born just a few months ago. So that will be in less than a year's time. Um, five little babies um, in this church, um, and that's just, that's good, um, and that is exciting, so praise God for that. Keep those women in your prayers, uh, pregnancy is not easy, you can ask them, they know, I don't know, it's, it's easy for me, I guess, but um, it's hard for them, so keep um, keep praying for them, and thank you, um, thank God that he is, he is growing this place, um, I'm, I'm excited to be a part of it. Um, turn your Bibles to uh, Mark chapter 6, Mark 6, verses 30 through 44. Mark 6, 30 through 44. Uh, this morning we've got the, the feeding of the 5,000, which is honestly one of the most familiar and the most popular stories in the Bible. Um, last week we had a great feast and a great banquet, remember, with, with Herod um, and all his friends. Uh, this week we've, not got, we've got another great feast and great banquet, this time um, led by Jesus. Uh, the two feasts are very different, um, if, if you remember last week. At all. Um, this morning, I just want to jump right in because we've got a lot to cover. Um, this morning, I want to just look at three primary things from this story. We're going to see first the compassion of Jesus, and then I want to see how the compassion of Jesus demonstrates itself in the provision of Jesus. First, the spiritual provision, and then the physical provision. All right, so that's what we're going to do this morning in Mark. Chapter 6, uh, verses 30 through 44, um, so you can just follow along as I read. This is God's Word. The apostles returned to Jesus and told Him all that they had done and taught. And He said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot, from all the towns, and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages, and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy two hundred denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the grass, green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all, and they all ate 
and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. Let's, let's pray before we begin. Father, we thank you this time. We thank you for your word. It's the opportunity and the blessing that it is to come and study it together. We pray that we would learn. We pray that we would learn ultimately um, so that we can better love and worship you. Father, um, teach us about your love. Teach us about Jesus Christ um, and your provision for us. We pray that your spirit would work in this place, um, that you would set me aside and that you would move and work and you would honor and glorify your name um, in this time. pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so last week, you remember, Mark has, has just relayed um, the story of the, the sending, the mission of the 12 apostles, right alongside the story of Herod and John the Baptist. Remember, John the Baptist, he gets arrested. Herod um, has his head cut off because of his wife, um, his, her request. And we saw last time how Mark was linking together these two seemingly unrelated stories. He's linking together mission and martyrdom. All right, we saw the call to mission and the um, sending of the twelve, and then we saw the cost of mission and the beheading of John. Wherever there is a call, there is also a cost. So our story this morning opens with the apostles coming back from this mission. We think it was about six months that they were out traveling and teaching. They're tired. They come back to Jesus, report to him, and Jesus offers them some rest and escape, some, some time to get away and recuperate after their travels and their hard work. Right? It's going to give them some rest. Rest is really important. But look at what happens in verse 33. The crowds see them climbing into the boat and sailing away. Right From a distance, they see, oh, wait a second, that's, that's Jesus and the apostles. So the crowds, they follow. Right? They're not sailing like across the lake to the other side. Sometimes to avoid walking, you just climb in a boat and you just kind of sail up the coast a little bit up north. And that's what the disciples are doing here. The, the people can see them. They want some more Jesus, so they go on after them. And then in verse 34, we see when Jesus gets out of the boat, he sees the crowd. It says, he has compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Now, this is where I want to camp here for a little while because here we have one of the, the greatest truths of Scripture, all right? The, the love of God, which I think, though, is also one of the most misunderstood truths of Scripture, all right? Everyone knows and is quick to quote 1 John 4, 8. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love, all right? Everyone loves the idea that God is love. That's part of the reason why John 3.16 is the most famous verse in the Bible. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. And we all know and love to repeat that verse, and, and we should. But, have you ever considered a very basic question in response to that verse? Why? Right? Why? Why does God so love the world. Why does Jesus have compassion on these people? If you can answer that question, then you'll be much closer to understanding the love of God. Why does Jesus have compassion on these people? Right? Why does God so display His love to us? And it is honestly, it's a surprisingly difficult question to answer. But there, there's one thing that Scripture is, is absolutely clear on. Right? God does not love us because we are lovable or good or because we have earned it or because we deserve it. 
Right? We do not impress God. We do not earn God's love. Right? Jesus did not have compassion on this crowd because they were super great and really good people. And he just really desired and was attracted to them. And, and they were very lovable. Now, the Bible is, is pretty clear that as sinners, we're not. Right? Romans 3 says that none of us are good and that none of us are righteous. Right? Ephesians 2.1 says that we are all so sinful that we are dead in our trespasses. Jeremiah 17.9 says that our hearts are deceitful and desperately sick. Right? I always have that verse ready when someone's like, you know, I'm just going to follow my heart. You know, I just feel like my heart's telling me to do this. No! Right? Don't do that. The, the Bible tells you your heart is desperately deceitful and sick. Isaiah 64, 6 says that we are all unclean and that our righteousness, our good deeds to God are nothing but filthy rags. Right? We are not lovable. We are not deserving of love. Yet, God is love. Right? We struggle with this concept because as finite sinners, we tend to love a little bit differently than God loves. Right? Our goal, ultimately, is to love like God, but we're not very good at it. What we generally talk about when we're talking about love is different than what God is talking about when He talks about love. Because for us, sometimes, love is often nothing more than selfishness. Alright, think of it like this. When I first met my wife, Melissa... Alright, this was just, this was a no-brainer. This was easy, okay? There were all of these things about her that I was instantly attracted to, right? The, just the, the stunning orange hair, right? I, redhead is a misnomer. It's just beautiful orange hair, right? I, I love that. She was, she was beautiful. She was kind. She was nice to me for some reason. There were all of these things that I liked about her and that made me feel good about me, right? But that's not love, okay? That is, that's hunger. Right? My attraction to Melissa was initially self-centered. Right? This is not love. This, this fake love says to the object of our attraction, you know what? You make me feel good about myself. You fill me up. You please me. You make me feel important. I want to have you so that I can have all of these things. Right? We tend to use love as a way to gain something and to serve ourselves. This girl is pretty, she's nice, she's got a well-paying job, I'm a broke student. There's all these great things that I could benefit from in this relationship. But that's just simply not what love is. Though that is the majority view of love today. And that's why marriage is simply in the terrible condition that it is. Because when love is ultimately about yourself and about what you can get out of the relationship then as soon as you're not getting those things out of that relationship, you're out. And you move on to the next one where you can better serve and fulfill yourself. That's not love. And that's not how God loves. Right? God's love in the Bible is always in action. It is, it is service. It is God choosing to seek the good of the object of your love. That's what love is. It is choosing to seek the good of the love. Right? My, my love for Melissa is not all these things about her that I can get and that are good. Listen, those are good things. I'm glad she's attractive and, and nice and a good mother. That's great. But my love for her is supposed to be my conscious choice and decision to seek her good above my own. That's what love is. That is how God 
loves, all right? We love by seeing all these nice, great, attractive things that, that we can benefit from, but we have nothing like that in us to offer to God. But he loves us anyways. He, he sets his love upon us for our good and for his glory. All right, God does not love us because we are lovable, but because he is love. Right? God loves because it is very nature to be loving. Right? One of the ways that the Bible talks about love is the, the, what it's called the inter-Trinitarian love. It sounds, it's way too complicated sounding. It's not. It is, the, it is the love within the three persons of the Trinity of the Godhead for themselves. Right? From eternity past, they were all perfectly loving and serving the other. Right? God's nature is to love. Right, and he loves us out of the overflow of that nature, of his love for himself and the other persons of the Trinity. It is not because we are lovable, it is because he is love. And it is his nature to overflow in love. But we've got to keep probing a little bit if we're really going to understand God's love. There's another important but difficult question that needs to be clarified if we're going to understand God's love. Right, bear with me on this one. Does God love everyone in the exact same way? All right? You would think the answer would be common sense. Well, obviously, he, he, he's God, right? But sometimes we don't use our common sense when it comes to God. I, want to, I think this is illustrated well by just kind of the, this, this crazy range of ways that we use the word love. All right, think about it. We use love to mean all kinds of different things. All right? Just... Go ask Melissa about the things that I love. Right? I love French fries. I love, it's my favorite food. I, I think I'm still a child a little bit, but I love those things. Right? I love Carolina basketball. I love the NFL. I love sitting and watching a good movie. I love my family. I love this church and the people in this church. I love my daughter. I love my wife. And I love God. Same word, right? But do, they, do I mean the exact same thing every time I use that word? Obviously not. Right? I really love French fries, but not nearly as much as I love Emma. Right? I really love you all and this church, but not nearly enough as much as I love my wife. I really love my daughter and my wife, but that love should never match or rival my love for God. Right? We use love to mean all kinds of different things. Or think of it like this. We already mentioned children. Right? I love that we're growing and we're starting to have children in this church, right? I love sweet little Thea and Caleb, and I love little baby VJ. I am so jealous of his hair, all right? I just want to take it and put it on my daughter's head because he has so much more hair than my almost two-year-old daughter, right? I love these little children, but I obviously do not love them in the same way that I love my own flesh and blood daughter. Right? My love for Emma is a special love that is different than my general love for the other kids in the church. Right? So that love obviously displays itself in different ways. Right? I go to great lengths to take extra special care of her. I clothe her. In all honesty, actually my in-laws clothe her. Right? They're the ones always buying her all the clothes. But I'm going to take the credit for it. Right? I, I provide for her. I, I feed her. I, I discipline her. I pour myself out for the service of my daughter. To, to serve her and to seek her good. Right? I don't do these things for the other children in the church. Right? This is the job of the parents of those other children. Right? I still love those children. 
but I love them in a different way than I love my own daughter, Emma. Well, if we turn to Scripture, we find that it's the exact same way in the Bible. Right? We can't get into the specific details, but when the Bible uses the word love, there are about five different ways it uses the word. We talked about the inter-Trinitarian love. That's one of them. The two that we're kind of talking about are we see it used in reference to God's general love for all that he has created, for, for all men and women equally as those created in his image and his likeness. But we also see his particular saving love that he pours out only on his people. Deuteronomy 10.15 reads, Yahweh the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them and chose them above all the nations. So it says there is some sense in where God selected and chose and loved Israel in a way differently than he loved all the other nations. Malachi 1 is a difficult verse where God says, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Now we don't understand exactly, no, we, we know what it means, but sometimes we misunderstand hate because of how we hate. And it's different. God hates in a different way than we do. But there's a way in which God loves Jacob differently than he loves Esau. Ephesians 5.25 says that Jesus loved and gave himself up for his church. Right? God pours out his general common grace on everyone. And he pours out his particular saving grace only on some. Right? This is something that I'm making up. Right? We're, just, we're just reading this from the scriptures. So, so understanding that scripture can mean different things when it uses the word love will help clarify much about God's love. Does God love everyone? Absolutely he does. Right? That is very clear in scripture. Does God love everyone in the exact same way? Scripture also seems clear that he does not. Because if he did, then everyone would be saved. Right? And it's clear also from Scripture that everyone is not. Have you ever heard, or ever used it yourself, I've used this all the time, the, the often quoted kind of Christian cliche that we use a lot, that, that God hates the sin, but he loves the sinner. Right? God hates the sin, but he loves the sinner. We, we use that a lot in Christian circles. And there, there really is some truth to that. It's not a completely bad statement. This is kind of a, an attempt that we make to kind of codify God's universal love for men and women. Right? But while there's definitely some truth in that phrase, the general idea is correct, what do we do with the verses in the Bible that seem to be in direct contradiction to it? Right? Verses that say very clearly that God hates the sinner. Uh, this week I started back reading through the Psalms again. And right away, early in the Psalms, you start running into some interesting things. Psalm 5.5 5 says, The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. Psalm 11.5 says, The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked. Fourteen times in just the first 50 Psalms, we read that God hates the sinner. Romans 1, 18-23 talks about the wrath of God that is poured out on sinners. God absolutely hates sin, but it seems that there is some sense and some degree from Scripture where it says God also hates the sinner. Right, now listen, I'm new to this whole ministry thing, but I'm learning how it goes. All right, I know that someone is going to go to someone else after the service and say, hey, did you hear the pastor said that God hates sinners? Right, can, you, can you believe he is teaching that? Do you think he actually believes that? Well, yes, I do, because that's what the Bible says. Right, I'm just reading you these verses that say these things. Right, we have so neutered God to make him appealing 
that the only thing we ever talk about when we talk about God is His love. Right? God is this soft and nice, warm, cuddly and friendly and, and safe. He, he never gets mad. He never raises His voice. He always forgives everyone no matter what they do. He's like this nice old you know, grandpa who lets his kids do, grandkids do whatever they want and, and run all over them and never corrects them or disciplines them. But this is simply just not the picture of God in the Bible. God is angry at sinners. God punishes sinners. Just go read any part of the Bible. Right? It's not like angry, just God in the Old Testament, nice, warm, merciful God in the New Testament. No, He is just as angry and just as wrathful at sin in the New. Just go and read what Jesus has to say about hell. Go read Revelations 16. God is righteously angry and just, and He will punish sinners. But of course, right, thank God that that's not the whole story, right? Yes, God hates sinners, as the Psalms say, but God also loves sinners, right? We saw this in John 3, 16. There is some way in which God's love is poured out and displayed on the whole world. In Matthew 5, 45, Jesus teaches in the context, he, he's teaching that we are to love our enemies, and he says, he does that, says love your enemies so that you can be like God who does the same thing, in pouring out his reign on the just and the unjust. James 1.17 says that every good gift comes from God. Whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, if there is something good in your life, God it came from God. He is the source of all that is good. God very clearly loves sinners. But how can He do this, right? We really struggle with this and misunderstand this. How can God love sinners and hate sinners at the same time? I think one of the best ways to illustrate it, and it's not something I've yet experienced, but I've watched my parents experience, I've watched other older parents experience it with, with children, right, who have kind of gone astray. Basically, children who have rejected them, gone off to do their own thing. All right? Children who are living this very destructive, sinful lifestyle. They're just obviously harming those children. So the parent just has this great love for their child. Right? That never changes. Right? You pour out your love. You just want so much for the good of your child. But at the same time, because of your love for that child, you just absolutely hate and despise the decisions that that child is making. And what is happening to that child because of those decisions. Right? You have great love for that child. And that great love leads you to have great hate for what they are doing. And what is becoming of them. Love and hate together. Right? Yeah, that's kind of how we can kind of understand it. But it does seem difficult. How can God hate sinners and love sinners? How can He satisfy His wrath and His love at the same time? If you haven't been to Sunday school, we've been talking about this. We've talked a couple times about what some refer to as the great riddle of the Old Testament in Exodus 34, 6-7. This is a fascinating passage that we just kind of skip over. In Exodus 34, 6-7. This is God talking. And God says this in Exodus 34. He says, the Lord, the Lord. Remember, that's His name. He says, Yahweh, Yahweh. A God merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Right? All oh, that sounds really, look at all this love and, and forgiveness and mercy. But then the passage ends like this. 
who will by no means clear the guilty. Have you ever thought about this passage? Right? It's kind of weird. And on the surface of it, it kind of doesn't make any sense. It seems to contradict itself. He is merciful and forgiving of iniquity and sin, but at the same time, he does not clear the guilty, which means he will not just clear and forgive their sin. Right? How can God do both of these things? How do these two things not contradict each other? Right? And if you've ever heard me before at all, you know where I'm going. The answer is very clearly the cross. Right? Do you want to see the greatest and most disturbing expression of God's wrath? Look at the cross. Right? Do you want to see the greatest and most beautiful expression of God's love? Look at the cross. Right? Because it is at the cross where God's justice and His love meet. Right? It is at the cross where we see just how much God hates sinners. Right? If God didn't hate sin and sinners, the cross makes no sense. Right? What's the point of the cross? Right? There's not a major problem. Listen to the language in Isaiah 53. Right? This is a, a beautiful um, little kind of chapter about Jesus before Jesus. In Isaiah 53, um, it, it describes what God does to Jesus in response to sin. Listen to these words. Sorrows, grief, stricken, smitten, afflicted, wounded, crushed, chastisement. That's what God does to Jesus in our place because of how much God hates sinners. Jesus becomes a sinner for us and He takes on all of God's hatred and wrath that we deserve. But oh, but the, the result of all of those terrible words in 53 simultaneously displays the great love of God for sinners in the same passage. Right? He was stricken for our transgressions. His soul makes an offering for our sin. He, he makes many to be accounted righteous by bearing their iniquities. He bears the sin of many. He makes intercession for transgressors. Our iniquity has been laid on Him. By His stripes we are healed. Now, do you see both the great hatred and the love of sinners in Isaiah 53? God is full of mercy and forgiveness. He is love. Right? But He is also holy and just and righteous. There is wrath. How can He be both? Right? He can be both through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, where God remains just by punishing Jesus for our sins, and then thus being free to then forgive us of those sins. Mercy and justice. Right? Love and hatred. It is both together. Right? Do not emphasize one to the exclusion of the other, because if you do, you get a non-biblical, skewed picture of God. Yes, of course, God is love. We can't even begin to comprehend God's love. Right? The love that, that so pours itself out in sending His Son to save His people. But God is also holy and just. We cannot play these two biblical truths off of each other. And in fact, it is His holiness and His hatred of sin that makes God's love so amazing. Because to remain just in the face of our great sin, He had to sin and give up His own Son. And He did. John 3.16, God so loved the world. Listen, the word so doesn't mean like, oh, it's just so much that He couldn't help it. No, the word so means in this way. God, God loves the world in this way. 
that He gave His only Son. So yes, God loves the world. But we've got to understand what that really means. Because people just so throw around the word um, love today that it's basically just lost all meaning. All right? but, but by better understanding what the Bible actually says when it talks about the love of God, we can better be informed and thus better love God in return. So Jesus has this great compassion on the crowd. He, he loves them. And as we're about to see, that love leads him to provide for them. But that does not mean that he delights in the sin or loves that they reject him. He hates that they are sinners. He hates what they are doing to themselves in their sin. We've got to hold both truths together. Of course God hates the sin, but there is some sense in which he also hates the sinner and loves the sinner. Right? God hates the sinner and he loves the sinner. Right? I would like to do a lot more to kind of cover and, and explain God's love because it is just so important. But we've got to move on. But that will kind of just lay the groundwork for some future kind of discussions about God's great um, love for us. All right, let's, let's, we need to move on to the results of Jesus' compassion on these people. Right, we've seen the story, it's about his compassion, and the fact that that compassion then displays itself in the provision of Jesus. The compassion of Jesus leads to the provision of Jesus. And like we discussed, again, when we talk about love, we generally mean kind of romantic, sentimental feelings. Like, I, I feel this way about you. I love you. But in the Bible, love is about seeking the good of the object of your love. Yes, Jesus has compassion on the people, but His compassion displays itself in action. His compassion leads to provision. He feeds the people. First, He spiritually feeds them, and then, and only then, does He physically feed them. Notice what, I love this, notice what His compassion leads them to do. He begins, He's got this great compassion on the crowds, He sees them, and what does He do? He teaches them. Jesus is the great shepherd of the sheep, and we see him primarily shepherding them by teaching them. And that's why the primary responsibility of a pastor, the, the under-shepherd, right? The pastor's not the shepherd, they're the under-shepherd under Jesus Christ, the shepherd, is also that our primary responsibility is the feeding of the people through preaching and teaching. Right? Jesus' compassion for the people results in his teaching the people. He provides for them spiritually. And this is only mentioned kind of in the tail end there of verse 34, kind of almost in passing. So it's not the emphasis of this passage right here, but it is such an important theme in the book of Mark that it, that it is important for us to touch on. Jesus' ministry was first and foremost a teaching ministry. He traveled around and he preached and taught. He explained God's word to people. And he was probably pretty good at it because John 1 tells us that he was God's word. So just to notice that the spiritual feeding comes first because it is the priority. Right Back in, in Matthew chapter 4, remember Jesus is baptized. He goes off into the wilderness, right? He hasn't eaten in days and, and Satan shows up and Satan comes to tempt him. And Satan basically says to him, hey, by the way, you're God. So just look at these stones, make them bread, and you can fix your hunger problem. But Jesus responds with a quote straight out of the Old Testament from Deuteronomy 8.3. He says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. 
In the context of that verse in Deuteronomy, right, that verse comes when God is reminding Israel um, that it was He that miraculously fed them when they were wandering in the wilderness. But right before that part that Jesus quotes, there's an interesting line. It says, And God humbled you and let you hunger and be fed only with manna, which you, do, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. You see what God is saying there in that passage. He, he allowed the Israelites to go hungry to some degree, feeding them only with manna, to teach them that there were things more important than food and physical satisfaction. Right? God allowed the Israelites to suffer a little bit to teach them the importance of relying on Him. God let them go without so that they could better know and understand just how much they had in Him and Him alone. He wanted them to know. And listen, it's just not about the things that you can get from me. It is about me. Right? And we think, our first response to this is, this is ridiculous, right? Well, of course, food is important, right? Because you've got to have food to survive. But that's exactly the point. That's why Jesus, in our story this morning, lets the crowd go hungry for a while. That's why he teaches them. He provides for them spiritually first. Right? He wants them to understand that just as much as we need physical food to survive, we must also have spiritual food to survive as well. So he provides for them that spiritual food. He teaches them, and he teaches them apparently all day, because that teaching is so important. Jesus lets them go without physical food so that they can get spiritual food, because he knows that in the grand scheme of things, from the perspective of eternity, Spiritual food is far more important. Right, people used to just value and treasure teaching. Right? Jesus could get away with teaching for a whole day. But if you teach today in churches in America for longer than 30 minutes, people start nodding off and checking their watches and complaining about it. That one was really long today, Pastor. I know, I'm sorry. But listen, sermons aren't important because I'm the one that delivers them. It's not about me. Right? Sermons are important because of what they are. Right? The exposition, the explanation, and proclamation of God's Word. Right? Because it is through His Word that God saves and creates and shapes His people. Right? Romans 10.17 says that faith comes through hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. Right? Without the Word then, there is no faith created. And with no faith created, there is no salvation. So without the Word, there is no salvation. That's why every Sunday we want to pray the Word and sing the Word and read the Word and preach the Word. And that's what we're going to do after the sermon. We're going to act out and visibly demonstrate the Word through the Lord's Supper. Because God's Word must be central to everything that we do. It is, it is by the Spirit working through the Word that God spiritually provides for us. God's Word is our spiritual food. Tell me, how often do you eat physical food? Right, if you're like my wife, it's like six times a day. Right? I'm usually more like two times a day. But right, most people, two or three times a day. Right? Can you imagine if you only ate physical food for about 45 minutes once a week around this time on Sunday? Right? Is this the only time that you are being spiritually fed? Jesus has great compassion on the crowd, so he teaches them God's word. God loves his people, so he 
gives them His Word through which they can learn about Him, know Him, and be saved by Him, and be matured and made more like Christ by Him. The Word is God's spiritual provision for His people. Are you taking advantage of this provision? Is this the only time you're hearing the Word this week? Right? This is the only time when I opened and read the Scripture that you're going to have read it this week. God provides for His people through His Word. Take advantage of God's Word. Alright, so remember, and again, we've emphasized this a couple of times so far, the spiritual feeding, the teaching comes first. It takes priority. Jesus First and foremost, a teacher. But he does not stop there, does he? After spiritually providing for the people, the apostles come to Jesus and they say, Hey, Jesus, uh, it's late. We're tired. These people need to eat. We probably need to eat too. We're, we're ready to go. Um, so kind of get rid of these people so they, can, so they can go do that. And Jesus says, You guys feed them. And I'm sure they, they laughed at Jesus. All they managed to come up with is five loaves and two fish. And they're thinking this just simply is not enough. For Jesus, But in the hands of Christ, in the hands of the creator and sustainer of the universe, the one who created everything out of nothing, five loaves and two fish are in abundance, right? They are more than enough. Jesus prays, he breaks the bread, and he simply starts handing out the bread. And he keeps handing out the bread, and he keeps handing out the bread, and he keeps handing out the bread, until everyone has their fill and we're satisfied. And I, I want you to notice just, just how unspectacular this miracle is. Right? I've mentioned before a man um, by the name of, of Augustine, who was probably the greatest theologian in the history of the church, you know, after Jesus and all the Paul and the apostles and everything. Um, he was a pastor in, in North Africa over 1,600 years ago. And I was reading his sermon on this story, and he brilliantly pointed out something that we've touched on a few times, something that we mentioned last week. Listen to what he says. Um, in his introduction to the, to the miraculous feeding of the 5,000. Augustine writes, Certainly the government of the whole world, right? He doesn't mean like the legal like government thing, right? He's talking about kind of the running of the whole world by God, right? He says, Certainly the government of the whole world is a greater miracle than the satisfying of 5,000 men with five loaves. And yet no man wonders at the former, but the latter men wonder at not because of... But the latter men wonder at, not because it is greater, but because it is rare. For who even now feeds the whole world, but he who creates the cornfield from a few grains? You see what he's saying there? We get so caught up with the, kind of, the miraculous, that we often miss what is really miraculous. Right? Hebrews 1.3 says that Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. Colossians 1.17 says that in Christ everything holds together. It is Jesus who sustains the entire universe. It is through Jesus that every day the entire world is fed. Right? How much more amazing and miraculous is that than his feeding of a couple thousand people one evening? Right? We talked about last week how with Jesus the miracles are never the point. Right? The message is the point. Jesus is the point. The miracle serves simply to confirm His authority and His message. Notice even how this passage talks about the miracle. Right? It doesn't describe the miracle. There's no big production. There's no fireworks. There's no abracadabra. Jesus doesn't make a big scene at all about what He's doing. Right? He just prays and He starts handing out food and He just keeps handing out food. It's not about the miracle. It's about the miracle worker. 
Right? It's, it's not about just what He does. It's about who He is. Right? Don't focus just on the miracle. Focus on Jesus. Right? Because the miracle teaches us something about Him. And as we've seen, it's related to His compassion. This is the, the second part. We saw His spiritual provision. Now we have His physical provision for the people. Right? And sometimes as Christians, we tend to try and be more spiritual than Jesus. Right? That's never a good idea, by the way. We can't be more spiritual than Jesus. You know, we say in churches sometimes, I've done this before, it's like, oh, well, you know what? We're just going to focus on evangelism and, and sharing the gospel here because that's what's more important. And that's, listen, that is what's most important. But throughout Jesus' ministry, we don't see him ignoring the physical and focusing just on the spiritual. Right? We see him caring for the whole person, ministering to body and soul. He teaches the crowd and he gives them food. He feeds the crowd. Right? He does this throughout his ministry. He does not neglect the physical or the spiritual. So I think it follows then that the church cannot neglect either, them either. And this is something that I confess that I personally need to work on, need your prayer about. Something that we need to pray about together as a church and figure out. Because let's be honest, it's just simply easier to not worry about it. Right? It's easier to not get involved with the poor and the suffering. It's easier just kind of to wash our hands of things and say, we're just going to focus on the spiritual needs of people. Because it costs money to minister to people's physical needs. Sometimes you get taken advantage of. Sometimes you get taken for a ride. Sometimes it's awkward and, and difficult. But it seems biblically that there is something, that this is something that the church is called to do. Jesus did it. He spent a lot of time with the poor ministering to their needs. James 2, 25, or 15 through 16 says, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm and be filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Likewise, 1 John 3, 17 and 18 says, If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Jesus was not just talk, but also deed. He provided spiritually and physically. And we, as his disciples, as the church, are called to follow him, even in this Area. And I'm honestly, listen, I'm not exactly sure what that should look like for Woodside Community Church. But I am sure that it is something that we are called to do. And it is something that we together as a church need to, to pray about and figure out together. Jesus provides for the physical needs of the people. So this morning we've seen Jesus display his great compassion for the crowd and his provision for the crowd. Compassion leads to provision. God shows His great compassion for us in providing for us physically and spiritually. God is love, and that love is so far beyond what we understand about love. It's not this mushy kind of emotional sentimentalism. It is, it is action. It is His intentionally seeking the good of those that He has set His love upon. Their spiritual and their physical good. Psalm 16.2 says, You are my Lord. I have no good apart from from you. There is no good that we have apart from God. God displays His love to us in many countless ways, but He ultimately displays His love to us in Jesus Christ. He loves to the point of sending His own Son to stand in our place. 
Romans 5, 8 says, But God shows His love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In John 15, 13, Jesus says, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lays down his life for his friends. God's perfect holiness and His perfect love meet at the cross. All right, he is just. He will punish sin. But, but out of His great mercy, out of the overflow of His heart, He sends His own Son to take that punishment for us. This is a God that is worth your trust. All right? This is the only love that can actually fulfill you. This is the only love that can actually meet the longing that you've been trying to satisfy so long with all these other loves, like girlfriends and boyfriends and wives and, and family and sex and all these other things, these, these counterfeits of love that we try to fill this void in our hearts with. Only God's love can meet that need. We are created for perfect, eternal love. And only God can provide that love through Jesus Christ. He has great compassion for His people. He has provided greatly for us. Let's, let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your love and your provision for us, your people. We thank you for providing for us ultimately in your Son, Jesus Christ. For sending our perfect substitute to come and to stand in our place and to die so that we could live. But Father, I thank you for taking care of our one great need. For taking care of our spiritual problem. And for giving our sin and reconciling us to you through the body and blood of Jesus Christ. So right now, Father, I pray that you would work in this room, that you would work in our hearts. Apply these truths um, to us. Convict us of sin. Lead us to faith and repentance. Father, bring dead hearts back to life in this place by your spirit and for your glory. And Father, we thank you for this time. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.